0: The information in this podcast is not a substitute for help from a licensed mental health professional. Welcome back to episode 73. I'm your host, Rebecca Wong, relationship therapist and mentor to therapist changemakers. We're diving in to examine how we can create deeply restorative ripples of change within ourselves and within the world around us. Today, we're talking about the evolution of sensitivity. Twenty percent of the world's population is made up of people with a character trait called high sensitivity that amounts to one in five people. So the chances are pretty high that either you or someone you love is a highly sensitive person or an H.S.P. HSPs are often overloaded with the chaos of the world and more keenly impacted by both positive and negative experiences. Today's show dives deep into the HSP trait and coping skills needed for the highly sensitive person to thrive. My guest, Julie Bieland, is a licensed marriage and family therapist with a private psychotherapy practice in California. Julie teaches innovative online brain training courses and has written several books, including Brain Training for the Highly Sensitive Person. She herself is a highly sensitive person and the mother of two highly sensitive children Julie's mission is to help highly sensitive people suffer less and access their gifts more We're going to be discussing character traits that are common among HSPs such as anxiety, low self-esteem, negative self-beliefs, and a sense of obligation to taking care of others' needs over their own We also explore the research Research that shows specific differences in the highly sensitive person's brain, most notably increased activation of the amygdala, which controls the fight, flight, or freeze response to stimuli. Julie shares why she feels that sensitive people have always been needed among our human species for survival, evolutionarily speaking. And I inquire about possible connection to epigenetics or the transgenerational transmission of trauma and how that relates to sensitivity. We, we muse about that together. But what we know for sure is that our world needs sensitive people, and in order for sensitive people to thrive, they need to focus on finding balance in their life and recognizing their own gifts of intuition and compassion. Let's dive in together and hear what Julie has to share with us about the specific brain training exercises that can best support the highly sensitive people in our lives. Hi Julie, I'm so grateful that you're here to join us today and talk about how to really help us understand and nurture our lives around understanding how to be with a highly sensitive person.
1: Well, thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be here and always excited to talk about this subject.
0: Yeah. You know, I wonder if a good place for us to begin might be just to start with, where did your interest form in the subject? I'm guessing it's a personal journey, but take us there. Yes, definitely personal. <laughs> I think probably
1: for many of us. You know, when I first started learning about the trait, there was not very much information out there. And Just wanted to find ways of understanding myself, why I felt so sensitive in the world, why it seemed like my experience seemed really different than a lot of people around me. And, you know, kind of wanted to figure out ways to reduce suffering and ways to be able to thrive in the world and move beyond a place of just getting through the day and instead being in a place that I could really you know, thrive in the world. And I guess that's where kind of most of us have that a mission, don't we?
0: Oh, yeah. I think everybody wants to know that they're doing things well. Everybody wants to feel that they matter. Yeah. Yeah. And that, you know, thriving in the world really kind of is what sets the stage or leads us back there. Yes, it does.
1: And I think just having worked with so many HSPs over the years, and I just see that we experience so many similarities. And I feel like we have such incredible gifts internally, and that we're often overloaded by sort of the chaos of our experience. Sometimes and there's, I think there's different layers of how sensitive we can be. I happen to be you know, at the very top, like if there's a self test, for example, that people can take. And out of the 27 questions, I answered true to every single one of them. So I had an incredibly, you know, high sensitivity experience. And that brought about lots of challenges. And it also, you know, there was a lot of gifts internally. And I think there was a part of me that was aware of that and needed to be able to lift off the burden of some of those challenges to access those gifts.
0: Yes. You know, I'm so aware of this from so many different layers. I certainly have my share of the highly sensitive traits. And I'm also raising children who are definitely higher on that scale even than I am. So I want to just really be mindful that we're talking here about not only ourselves, but also the people in our lives around us, the people whom we're living with, the people who we interact with on a day-to-day basis. One in five people are highly sensitive. Is that correct?
1: Yes, definitely. And most of us have somebody that we know that are. I'm also raising highly sensitive children, too. And it's been a fascinating experience to see the world through their lens, you mm-hmm. know, and the experience of them having somebody that understands it is so different. And, you know, the research is showing that a lot. in if children are raised with understanding and support of their sensitivities, those children are actually less likely to experience anxiety and depression, for example. But you know, we're, as HSPs, we're more impacted by the positive and the negative. So we can also be more likely to have anxiety and depression if we're raised in environments that don't support our trait.
0: And this is typically the entry point that most HSPs would either learn about their trait or come into therapy, right? They would be coming in because. Life doesn't feel so good.
1: Yes, we'll see things like, like I screen everybody that comes in with anxiety, for example, and most of them turn out to be HSPs. Things like self-esteem issues. I can remember even my very first call to a therapist was about how do I work on my self-esteem before I even knew about the trait. So that's a big part of it.
0: And you're going there, you're going into that self-esteem thing. I know before we started recording, we were chatting a little bit and you were talking about how these negative self-talk, the negative self-beliefs, this is so much a part of what you see in your office when you're talking to a highly sensitive person. Can you share a little bit more about that with us?
1: Yes, I think that I've witnessed such a similarity between most of the clients and students that I work with that are HSPs and in my own journey having these exact same experiences is probably why I can pick up on it so quickly and see the patterns. We tend to be really hard on ourselves. I mean, it's part of the trait to want to get things done right the first time. And so we tend to have these kind of perfectionist standards for ourselves. And as we know, since perfection doesn't exist, that usually means that we're setting ourselves up to feel like we've failed a lot because we're not reaching perfection. And I often talk about the way that we judge ourselves is quite intense. And, you know, there's been some amazing things done where they'll have like people say their inner talk to their best friend, for example. Yep. And when you switch it like that, it's just incredible. Like, are we actually talking to ourselves that way? Yes, we are, you know, in very, very critical ways. And so I often say like the, the emotion itself that we're experiencing might be about five pounds, but the judgment we're putting on top of it is a 1000 pounds. That's the part that we we're not accepting in ourselves. And that's a huge piece of change is to just to learn to, you know, kind of move in the direction of self acceptance, It helps us be more vulnerable. That's a big part of our experience, too, is that I've seen that many of us, including myself, used to have a lot of walls up. And I think that, that prevents us from truly connecting with people if we have a lot of walls up in it's because we actually need to be vulnerable to connect. But if we feel that we're not safe or accepted in the world in some way, then we tend to have a hard time being vulnerable. And other pieces of it are if we have a lot of obligation. We tend to feel like we need to take care of everybody else's needs before and above our own. And if we do take care of our needs, there's this experience of feeling guilty. So guilt is a big aspect, too. These are kind of all pieces that I've seen that we experience as HSPs.
0: Yeah. I imagine these are also things that people who aren't technically an HSP, who don't maybe meet all the criteria to have the trait, that there's a looseness, there's a fluidity here where a lot of what we're talking about today can apply to so many different people, with so many different characteristics and traits. Yes, that's very true. (laughs) (laughs) So I want us to back up and talk about the trait a little bit, the highly sensitive trait. I know we've talked about this on past shows. It bears repeating often because so many of us need to hear things more than once to really absorb them and integrate them and make them something that is ours. Yes, definitely. I'd love to come in and talk a little bit about the trait, but I'd also like to talk about like why this trait exists, why developmentally over time have we evolved this way as, as a people?
1: Yes, I think it's so fascinating to learn about that. That's part of moving towards self-acceptance is to really understand why it exists in the first place. So it's a survival strategy and it makes up 20% of the population. And it has to do with... It's also called sensory processing sensitivity. It's kind of the scientific name for it. And to note, this is a trait and not a disorder. That's important to note.
0: So when my pediatrician notices that one of my daughters might have some differences in how she processes things in a sensory way, that's him at an early stage picking up on this.
1: Yes. Okay. Yes. And it's so important to... Be really educated about the trait if you have children that are highly sensitive, because we might need to advocate for their needs and whether it's, you know, with the medical profession or in school, various things like that. So it's basically a greater sensitivity and responsiveness to environmental and social stimuli. And we see 70% are introverts. And 30% are extroverts. And that's important to note, too, because sometimes it gets associated as the same thing as introversion. So we can see that it's actually not the same thing, since some of us are actually extroverts. And then there are very specific brain differences that we've been finding. And I think that it's exciting to see the new research coming up that's showing some of the differences. And I'm happy to go into some of that if you like.
0: I'd love you, too.
1: Yeah. So one of the things that impact us the most, I think, is the increased activation of the amygdala, which is a part of the brain that is the fight-flight-freeze response. That's the part that, you know, if there's a lion about ready to attack you, (laughs) you can do something about it. You're going to either fight, so your adrenaline gets released in your body. The problem is that most, what I call kind of untrained HSPs, that. The HSPs that haven't really learned about all of these things and kind of made some of the adjustments and created some of the tools needed tend to have that activated on a daily basis. And that's something I used to experience a lot, constant racing heart. It's interesting because if we're, I kind of simplify it to think about we have two parts of our brain, the emotional brain and the cognitive brain. And when the emotional brain is activated, for example, that amygdala getting activated, our cognitive brain kind of goes to sleep. And that's the part that can find facts and information. And so we've all been in those scenarios where we're really overwhelmed or overstimulated and we're maybe activating that part and we feel really out of control. Maybe we're having sort of an emotional meltdown. And then after we've calmed down, we can see it in a completely different way because we've been able to you know, reactivate that cognitive brain. And there's actually ways to do that to purposefully activate it so that you can access those parts that are needed to help you through. It's kind of like the cognitive brain is kind of like having a supportive friend. that <laughs> can help you through the tough moments. We also have an increased brain mirror neuron system. And that is like, we literally fire some of the same neurons of somebody that we're watching. So if we're you know, talking to somebody that's in a lot of pain, whether it's physical or emotional, we can actually start to, act, you know, fire those same neurons and literally feel what they're feeling. That's our sort of advanced empathetic
0: response. And there's a point in here where that's like an amazing thing to be able to do. But then there's also a point where it's really overwhelming to be living in that space. And I think as we dive deeper into this conversation, and you bring us into brain training, is that something that you talk a lot about?
1: Yes. And that's part of the challenges and the benefits of it. I mean, that's a beautiful thing to feel so deeply. And we can feel like I can look at a sunset or a beautiful bird and almost be moved to tears. It's just so incredibly beautiful. And that's something I love about the trait, you know, or a moment with one of my children just can be amazing and the incredible intensity of those positives. But then there's the intensity of the challenges that come with that, you know, part of that overstimulation, for example. So I think that's why it's important for us to understand it deeply so that we don't get overloaded by the challenges, which is something I certainly used to be. And I think that's what really drives me to spread awareness and education about the traits so that we can understand ourselves better, accept ourselves better, live better, because we have
0: such gifts to offer the world. Indeed. Indeed. And I want to really understand this piece about the amygdala. I think it's really important. So often we hear about the amygdala these days when we're talking about trauma. Mm -hmm. We hear about the fight, flight, freeze response all the time, whenever the conversation is around trauma. We don't hear about it enough. I believe, when we're talking about normal development, when we're talking about why, like the survivalism, the fact that we needed this at some point. And in some of us, I mean, maybe this is epigenetics, right? Maybe this I'm using right now and I can be really off base. But is it possible that what we're really looking at is a transgenerational transmission of a trauma response?
1: Well, I don't know if I would go there with it, because I kind of see where you're going with that. And I think that there are changes that are possible with trauma responses. But the more you kind of learn about the evolution of the trait and kind of where it comes from and why, like, I like to imagine, for example, when we were living out on the land in tribes, for example. Mm -hmm. And why is it that 20% of us have it? Why is it not 50-50, for example? And kind of exploring those. And so, The HSPs were the ones that were the guides, the mentors, the healers. They were also the ones that could, you know, they had sort of this enhanced awareness of opportunities for like food, mates, alliances, threats, predators, competitors, things like that. And so the 80% were the ones that, you know, if there was going to be a lion that was going to attack the tribe, they were the ones that jumped in and, you know, attacked instantly. They don't have that same pause and check system that we have. So they jump in. And so that's needed in the world too, but also they're going to be killed more. So we need more of them because they're actually going to be, there's going to be more of them killed. So the HSPs would have been the ones that could say, you know what, I think this is going to be safe for us to set up our tribe over here. There's good food opportunities here. This is away from predators. So we're more of the planners and we have that. We know that too about the brain of the HSPs, we have an increased brain activation of things like attention and action planning, for example. So I think that kind of thinking of it in those terms. Oh, there was another thing that I think is really interesting. I was reading about some of the research that they were doing because they found this in over 100 species already. 100 species. Yes, it's been found in over 100 species. And one of the tests that they did for some of the species, and I thought this was really interesting, is they had sort of a trap set up. And they found that the non-sensitives all got caught in the trap and the sensitives didn't.
0: Uh, there was a caution. There was a, yes. a a different way of reading the lay of the environment.
1: Yes. And so you can see how important that would be. That's part of that survival strategy to hold back a bit. And you'll see that in, You know, a lot of HSPs, we hold back, we observe for a little bit. We have that kind of pause system where it's like, let me check this out for a bit. Is this safe? Is this okay? We see many different angles around something. And that's an incredible gift for survival. But you can see how we would
0: actually need both types in the world. Oh, yeah. Yeah. How we complement each other. Yes. We need to send somebody out in the world who can be really observant and see what's going on and let us know when the rest of us need to slow down or something along those lines. We need the both. It's not either or. It's not one is better than the other. It's that we complement each other.
1: Yes. And we so need each other and we don't need to change each other. And I think that our society in America anyway, is we tend to value, you know, extroverted traits and So, for example, if you see a child walk into a classroom or something, and if that child is sensitive, they're going to hold back and observe a bit. But we often tend to label that as shy or something's wrong with it in some way. And I think it's important to note that as a society, you know, this part of the population offers many different gifts. And it's kind of my mission that someday we even see, you know, big changes, like, for example, in companies that find ways of valuing their sensitive employees and what they can offer and, you know, changes in the education system. And I could go on and on about that. (laughs) My mission to change all of that, (laughs) because I think, you know, we do offer such incredible gifts. You know, we have such incredibly intuitive. There's a knowing oftentimes that we have. It's almost like having this whole extra sense, incredibly and compassionate. You know, we actually tend to score higher and perform higher in our work we also have higher stress levels. We tend to be creative and responsive parents. You know, we put others first. We have, as we've talked
0: about before, just incredible compassion and empathy. So putting others first, it's both a strength and a curse.
1: Yes, it's a curse if you put others first all the time, meaning you're always at the bottom of the priority list, which seems to be a lot of our defaults. But it can be a gift if you can find that balance. And that's what I'm always working on with HSPs and through clients and students is to find that balance that try to put your needs at that priority where you're getting your basic core needs met. And then you do have something to give to the world. But we tend to get very depleted and drained because we're giving, giving, giving all the time.
0: All the time. Yeah. Yeah let's talk a little bit about these traits. We're talking about the greater responsiveness. We're talking about how the empathy and just the greater deeper awareness is partly there as a survival mechanism. Let's also talk about the increased attention and the action planning that you also talk about and dive in a little bit more to this does acronym that we hear about so often when we're talking about highly sensitive people.
1: Yes. So, that's something we've found in all highly sensitive people. And that does acronym spells out depth of processing. You know, we tend to be very deep thinkers, and we're processing many different things. I talk about like, you know, for example, a non-HSP might have kind of three tubes of information coming into their brain, and an HSP might have 50 to hundreds of tubes of information. So, that, of course, leads us to the, the O, which is overstimulation. That's the most difficult part of the trait is the overstimulation. Obviously, if we're taking in and and aware of so many subtle stimuli that we're going to be overstimulated. The E represents emotional responsiveness. And the S is sensitivity to subtle stimuli.
0: There's so much in there.
1: Yes. (laughs) And it's overstimulation that is our hardest challenge. You know, that's the part that leads to depletion, burnout. Oftentimes, we feel misunderstood a lot. And, you know, if 80% of the people are experiencing the world in a different way, it's quite likely we are going to feel misunderstood and different. And oftentimes, the world's not set up for sensitivities. You know, I think about that a lot in just so many different scenarios.
0: That the world's just not set up. Yeah, I'm raising two young ones whom... Even reading a book where, you know, the crux of the story is that like big life changing moment. Even just reading the book, when we get to that big life changing moment, they're like, okay, we're done with the book now, mom. But their depth of processing, their understanding, their knowing of just the challenges in life. They're very clear in telling me, mom, we're not ready for that right now. This is why we don't want to watch movies. This is why we choose not to watch television. We struggle even listening to some of the books as you're reading them to us. How old are they? They are seven and nine. Okay, yeah. Yeah. And so it's their own awareness that's guiding this, you know. But oftentimes we read some very gentle books, but I've just started reading some that are more fantasy, more fairy tale, and beautiful, beautiful books. And this particular book that we're in the middle of right now, we're right at the crux where literally there's a tiger involved, you know. <laughs> and they're just like, no, no, this is not what we want to tolerate. And I am hearing this conversation, and I'm also thinking about them a little bit. So I'm just being informed by that. But I want to make sure that I'm also addressing it a little bit, because this is how I see it in my own family.
1: Yeah, well, it shows up in lots of ways. You can see it in kids, for sure. With a lot of highly sensitive children there they're deep thinkers, they're deep processors, they're deep feelers. And, you know, and we are too, if we're watching the news, for example, that can be something that can be incredibly distressing for us. And we often have to limit what we're taking in, you know, with intention. And sometimes with highly sensitive children, we've got to do that even a little bit more. more.
0: Julie, do you ever find with adults who maybe aren't tapped into their high sensitivity, who don't know that this is what they've been dealing with all their life, who don't understand that this is why they've maybe been anxious or depressed or something else? Do you ever find that they come in not realizing that all of these things in their lives are overwhelming them?
1: Oh, absolutely. Especially things like sensory things, sensory overload. That's something that we don't think a lot about. Sometimes we don't even realize. I can remember before I understood about the trait, just to give a kind of an example for listeners is like, if I was to go into a busy restaurant that's really crowded and loud, and I sit in the middle of the restaurant, so I've got that 360 degree experience of sensory overload, If I didn't understand that that was sensory overload, I'm going to think like, oh, my gosh, I'm so irritable now. Like, oh, man, everything's just irritating me, you know, and I won't know that it's about the sensory issue as an example. And I've had people come to me, clients come and they think that they have an anger problem or, you know, and and for example, they're actually highly sensitive, but they're so overloaded and overstimulated that that fight, flight, freeze response is happening so often. So it's creating that impact to think that, oh, they've got an anger problem, but that's not it. They just need to find the right kinds of self-care and downtime to manage that overload. And it shows up in a lot of different ways. Sometimes it'll even show up in relationships. For example, if I'm seeing a couple and one of them is highly sensitive and they don't know it. Sometimes we'll see examples of people literally shutting off all emotions.
0: Can you go a little deeper there? I see it often in couples myself, and I'm yes. wondering if we can talk about that for a minute. Yeah, it's interesting
1: because it'll obviously come as an impact in the relationship if you can't be in touch with your emotions. And so sometimes they'll think like, oh, this person has you know, is not impacted at all by their emotions because they just don't show their emotions. But it's important to recognize the difference that sometimes, and I've seen this often, that especially people that have had really difficult childhoods or backgrounds in some way where... Emotions may have been too intense at one point, so it's almost a defense mechanism to shut them down and shut them off. And then we can go through a process of, as we explore the trait and understand what their experience is, it, I call it kind of a defrost period, getting back in touch with some of those emotions, because we actually need to be in touch with our emotions to
0: have a successful connected relationship. You really do. Yeah. You know, and I think this is so key in my couple's work is helping people get back in touch with who they are and what they're feeling. Yes.
1: Yes. And they have to be able to be well as an individual to be well in the couple mm-hmm. relationship. And, and that's something that comes up a lot, especially HSP moms. They seem to be <laughs> <us. laughs> the HSP moms because our work is never done. There's always never something done. That needs to be done and there's mm-hmm. always something that's needed of us. Yeah. So we do tend to be at the bottom of our priority list. Yeah. And I see moms try so hard to like, I'm going to go to that yoga class and then, oh, something else comes up and, that the kids need. And now that's off the table. And, and that,
0: the self-care, the, the filling of their well is the thing that isn't happening. Yes. And that feeling of that well, like you were saying, that's the key to being well as an individual and inside of a relationship. So much. And, you know, I'm just thinking of a few clients that I have. In my practice, some couples and in multiple couples, there's a situation happening where maybe one partner is feeling something and not expressing it. And the other one is pretty perceptive and really sensitive and already is reacting to it because they already kind of intuit what their partner's inner experiences, even before their partner can express it.
1: Yes, definitely. HSPs can be incredibly wonderful partners if we're taking care of our own needs. I think that's usually a bit <laughs> the crux there, right? Yeah. Learning those boundaries. Yes. And you, I'm sure that you experience that too, of, of hearing, talking, working with clients that it always appears that, you know, you'll hear things like, oh, I don't have time for that. I don't have time for self care. I don't have time for downtime. And those that actually Try it. I usually tell them, like, just try this for one week. I want you to try it and see what it feels like. And they'll always come back every single time, and they have come back and said, I actually ended up having more energy and I got more done by taking that downtime. So we recommend that we're having a minimum of two hours a day of time to ourselves alone time. That's not always possible for moms, but. Like for myself, I would find, you know, creative ways of doing that, like swapping times that, you know, I would have maybe with friends and their kids so that we could kind of swap those times and have time to ourselves. And also it was fun for the kids to hang out with their kids. Um, so finding ways to do that. And also we're recommending one day off per week. That That is also something that people are not doing. Really off, meaning, you're not working, you're not doing your to-do list, you're, you know, are doing things. And I consider, I hope that people can get about a half a day a week off as well that are like to themselves alone. I think that alone time is essential. And a lot of us don't get enough of that because that's the time that we're going to be doing the brain processing. Because so we talked about that depth of processing. Every HSP has to do processing time. Yes. and with, Without the processing time, We'll get impacted by not sleeping well. You know, that's when it's going to start processing in the middle of the night, for example, or you're going to get sick because you're so overstimulated. So that brain processing is an absolute essential piece. So I often say to people to plan for that. If you want to be asleep by 10 o'clock, then plan to start your bedtime routine a couple hours earlier so that you can have that downtime. Yes. Yes.
0: So can we dive into to how, you know, we do this brain training stuff? I think it's probably the most important part of this conversation. Yes, sure. And we're already getting in there a little bit, I think. We're talking about how to learn about the trait and then how you start shifting your lifestyle so that it supports you.
1: Yes. And I've seen that because if you can open up sort of a creative center of your brain, for example, that means that you've created space to work on some of this stuff so like in my programs i always start with how are we going to first get you to move from a state of complete overload to i actually have some space to learn some new tools so it kind of has to start out like that that if we want to learn something new we've got to create space to do that and so a lot of it starts with though the belief that it's needed you know, like we have to believe that it's needed and that we're worth it. Families and relationships are going to be worth it. And we see a difference. Like if we're taking care of ourselves well, then that shows up in how we interact as a parent, how we interact in our relationships and everybody benefits. It's like a domino effect. So kind of finding that piece of that is in us that believes that this is a necessity and that I consider self-care for an HSP to be a medical necessity. Mm. We're not well without it. I love that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It is so, so incredibly true. It's, It's like, this is why I need to sleep in at least one morning a week, yes. right? Like I need this time in bed and it's non-negotiable, <laughs> I'm not yes. just being selfish or lazy.
1: <laughs> That's, we have to change that language, don't we? That we really we do, do for ourselves that it's that a lot of people say, Oh, that makes me feel like I'm lazy or I'm not being productive. Or, and I always say, I think there was a shift for me because I grew up in a home where it's like, you stay busy. And if my dad didn't see me busy, he'd find me something to do <laughs> that I didn't want to do. Because I grew up on a farm and there was always a lot to be done. <laughs> so part of something that shifted for me, because I know that tends to be a challenge for a lot of people is this idea, of but then I'm not productive. Mm-hmm. If I'm just sitting around, you know, reading a book or listening to music or
0: meditating. It's that invisibleness of the processing. Because there's productiveness that happens in that space.
1: Absolutely. That's but what I can say.
0: Yeah, it's that thing we can't touch.
1: Yeah. And I say, an HSP doing nothing is an HSP doing something. And that means you're processing, which is a need. You have to process. It's going to come out in some way that you're not going to want it to come out if you're not allowing that processing time. It's just like a, I mean, if you have a supercomputer and our supercomputer brains constantly downloading and processing, the computer is going to freeze and or it's going to melt down, <laughs> and that's what happens. So I think there's a part of us that kind of all know, like what the days that we do take better care of ourselves, we notice the difference in everything that we do.
0: Julie, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking right now, and what I'm thinking about is, you know, this thing we were talking about earlier in the show about how maybe evolutionarily speaking, we needed HSPs to be the ones who were like, hey, guys, like let's not go there. There's some danger there. And as I'm thinking about that kind of framework, I'm also thinking about HSPs today, which has me thinking, like we need to learn how to slow down because it's not just us that needs to slow down. It's actually all of us that needs to learn how to slow down and how to rest and how to process and how to integrate. Like information is coming at all of us at too high a frequency, too fast. Nobody can digest all of this.
1: Oh, yes, absolutely. I think that most people have about 30% more on their plates than they can handle. I'm and included in that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think all of us are by default, unless we're actively doing something about it. And it's showing up. I'm hearing a lot from teachers. It's showing up mm-hmm. in the classrooms. Kids are oftentimes, you know, over busy. Parents are over busy. And we're seeing anxiety rates yeah. skyrocket right now, which is why we're seeing a lot of conversations about meditation and mindfulness and stress reduction, because it's overloaded now. And it's this constant connection. I even talk about like, change the notifications in your phone, too, you know, as a little thing that you're not constantly notified of every single email, every single everything that goes through your phone. Because every time that makes a sound, your brain goes into do mode. And I think that we have to have periods of the day that we're not in do mode. Mm. 100%. Yeah, I'm just totally
0: in agreement with you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And, you know, it's kind of a holistic process. I think that's been a big part of my work is a real holistic process, looking at all the different parts of your life. Where are your big energy drainers going? Like, is it certain people, certain times of the day? We tend to need more boundaries, for example, because we're such yes, people we will just do it. Yes, yes, yes. And without thinking about do I have time and energy for this? And, you know, we feel guilty if we don't say yes. But I often say if we're always saying yes to everyone else, that means we're actually saying no to our needs a lot.
0: And that's an important piece. I love that you say that. We have to know what we want to say yes to because we have to say no to everything else. And if we don't say those no's, then there's no room for our yeses. So the things that get the emphatic yes, we only make space for them by saying no to everything else.
1: Yes. That's a really important piece. I know for myself, I've spent time where almost every day, I think about reminding myself of what my priorities are. And that helps a lot because I get very into my work and, you know, get excited about all of that. And I can overdo it too. So I have to remind myself, you know what, wait a minute, my relationship, my family, those are priorities. Am I prioritizing that today? Does that align with my values right now? Does that align with What's important to me? And I think kind of constantly checking in with ourselves. I actually tell my students and clients too, every time you go to the bathroom, that's a great time because it's several times a day. You ask yourself, how am I doing right now? Do I need anything? Am I okay? These can be life-changing because then we can catch ourselves by, you know, for example, if we're doing our work to kind of stay centered and balanced and we continue to check on ourselves, We know how far off we're getting off of our center. And so if you start to notice it sooner, by asking yourself those questions, you can get yourself back to that centered space again. And, you know, it's a real important guide for us to have. And we tend to be really great at reading our internal cues if we're stopping and asking and listening. Mm
0: -hmm. But it's that practice. It's the knowing. It's the noticing. It's the giving ourselves time to come back and say, this is what's happening for me. Yes. Yeah. Repetitively
1: over and over again and making note of it. Yes. And, you know, being able to get to know ourselves. I know when I first started my work, I didn't even know what I needed. Mm -hmm. And a lot of HSPs are like that, that I've worked with. Mm -hmm. Um, As it be, somebody would ask me, oh, you know, where, where do you want to go for dinner? Oh, I don't know. Where do you want to go? (laughs) you know it's like my constant was put it back on somebody else because well what if they don't like what I pick (laughs) you know then we get through the worries about that but that's just a little example of that we have to kind of know what we need in order to express and advocate for our needs
0: Mm -hmm. it's prereq so often the thing that gets people into trouble in relationships, in life, in general, is that they can't express what they want. And we have this magical idea that somehow the world is going to attend to us, the people in our lives will attend to us and meet those needs, as if we're still babies whose mothers keep us in their arms. Um, but we can't. We can't get our needs met if we're not able to verbalize them and acknowledge what they are.
1: Yes, and it's so important. One thing that kind of surprises people when I say this, but as we kind of talk about where this comes from, it makes sense. I've actually seen that HSPs tend to have the most resentment, like in relationships, for example. Incredibly, yes. It starts out, if we rewind the tape as to how that resentment tank got filled, if we start from the very beginning, it always starts from the exact same place. It comes from this beautiful part of us that wants to be you know, a giver, we give and we often think that I hear this all the time, that it seems easier to disappoint ourselves in the moment than it does to disappoint somebody else or seems easier to meet their needs, because that will make them happy. And we don't want to deal with making some, you know, disappointing anybody or not being that giver. But the problem is, is then we do that over and over again. And that continually starts to over time, that just doesn't work for anybody. Nobody can constantly give up their needs and be okay. It just doesn't work that way. So what happens is, is, I'll see that a lot in couples that I work with, for example, and it starts out from this beautiful place as a being a giver, and then the partner doesn't always have this awareness that that's what's happening, that they don't always know that their partner was being such a giver. And so there becomes this imbalance in giving, and that's what starts to develop, the resentment. And then when resentment is there, there's a disconnect
0: of that connection. It leads into what the Gottmans would call negative sentiment override. And when we get into that resenting place, it's really hard for even the positive things that happen within the relationship to go well.
1: Yes, then you start scanning for the negatives instead of scanning for the positives.
0: Which we all do at a much higher frequency anyway. We're already scanning, like, what's the ratio? It's something like for every one negative thing that we pick up on, it takes like five positive experiences for us even to register that there was a positive.
1: Yes. So negativity bias in our brains, everybody does not just HSPs, but that's a part of our experience because we still have the prehistoric brains that impacted us more, for example, to, to, you know, not pay attention to that lion around the bush than it did to see the carrot that we could eat. So that's the negativity bias got developed that way because it was, if you think about who survived those times, it was the ones that were constantly scanning for the negatives, right? Right, it was How the did. ones who knew
0: where the lions were, not the <laughs> ones who knew where the carrots were.
1: <laughs> exactly, not looking up at the beautiful sky, we're not the ones that were, you know, surviving. So we tend to have that. But the neat thing about the brain is we can actually change that negativity bias. If you work on certain tools and techniques, you can literally light up and grow certain parts of the brain that help us feel more positive and calm, for example. And that really excites me about the brain training part is because you can do something about it and it works. Give us an example. Wow, there's so many examples. Are you talking about like the negativity bias as an example? Just in regards to how we can change our brains. Oh, okay. There's so many things to say about it. Sometimes it's hard for me to pick just one. Well, I think that, so we tend to be a little bit more into rumination, for example, that tends to be it's like some people will ask me, what's the difference between processing and rumination? And I think rumination comes as a part of an attachment to that negativity bias where we can start thinking a lot about negative things, like even about ourselves, for example. I'm, I can think about my own internal language before I develop some of these skills where, you know, I'm too weak, I'm too sensitive, there's something wrong with me, you know, all that negative labeling. And if I'm talking to myself that way, that's how I'm feeling about myself. Like the brain believes what we tell it. So I often say to start tracking your internal language, for example. How are you talking to yourselves? Can you be a little bit more kind and compassionate? I think developing self-compassion as an HSP is like if you only do one thing, that would be life-changing to develop a self-compassion practice that can be a friend to yourself. So if you're, you're having a hard time going through something and you're kicking yourself when you're down, then I used an example of that in my book and course where imagine that there's two children who are suffering in some way, you know, there, something's happened, whether it's physical or emotional. And to one of the children, you say, Oh, my God, what is wrong with you? I cannot believe you are that, you know, fill in the blank, stupid, weak, fragile, whatever the language that we use for ourselves, versus the other one, we say, you know, I'm so sorry that you're going through this. Come here. What can I do for you? Let me hold you. Let me embrace you. Let me, let me find ways to make you feel better through this. And which, how do we think each one of those children are going to be impacted? You know, we think, oh, we'd never talk to a child that first way. But we talk to ourselves that way a lot. And so that we've just made that. We've added that 1,000-pound weight that I was talking about. And made it that much harder. So to shift even that, to become aware of that internal language, that's a big part of it.
0: It's a huge part, and for so many of my clients, that's exactly where my work begins. Let's just look at how what your inner dialogue looks like. Let's look at how you talk to yourself. Yeah,
1: and oftentimes we don't even we're not even aware that we are that unkind to ourselves. Mm-hmm. It just it becomes a habit that you've had for so many years. You don't even realize you're doing it.
0: I find that in my own life, it's surprising when I start noticing a new thing. And it's always a surprise for my clients when we start dropping in and noticing like, oh, what was that that you just said to yourself? <laughs> yes. Right? Like What did you just say you were? And when we drop into that space, it's always like, oh, wait, I talked to myself. How? Yeah. What is it that I just said about me? Yeah. So
1: hard to go through the world like that. And it's such a difference. And it takes time. It depends on how... Hard you are, you've been on yourself. I think about my own practice of when I first started, and it seemed absolutely impossible for me to experience self compassion. I wasn't used to feeling that. I wasn't used to even trying to feel that. And I think that developing that practice has been life changing. It's just these moments, if you have, you know, your inner child kind of dialogue coming up or some insecurities popping up, to be able to be that friend to yourself in those moments is it gets you through everything versus making you want to sort of get in your bed and put the covers over your head and not get up anymore. <laughs> I remember like before I learned all of this, that I just felt like, Oh, I just got to, I just want to get to my room, close the door and shut out the world. Like everything just seems so hard. And, you know, that's not a way to thrive in the world. And I think that's where, you know, that part of me was like, I really need to change this. I want something more for myself.
0: Hmm. And so this is what you teach now. You teach this in your therapy practice. You teach it in your book. You teach it in your online courses. This is what you now teach.
1: Yeah, it comes from a personal space of understanding what it's like and how hard it can be and kind of moving through that tunnel to the other side. And I think it's just I really have such a mission to bring people to that other side with me. That's kind of the trained HSP side, because that's where we're going to be available to share all these incredible gifts with the world. And HSPs are so needed in the world. We really are needed.
0: So give us a sense of what the trained HSP looks like. How do they go through the world differently?
1: That's a great question. And I always preface this, that there's no such thing as perfection. Even when I'm working with a client that's like really got the tools down and things are just going so great, you know, we still go through the wave of life. And so a trained HSP would be somebody that could do more of the pause and reflect, for example, and respond rather than react. That's something. So, for example, if you're facing something that is emotionally difficult, instead of just completely activating that emotional brain, then you're lost in that and you're having kind of a meltdown that you later have to feel guilty about or that you feel bad about you now can pause and reflect and use your tools. I even help people create a new neural sprout that is part of this pause and reflect system that you can stop and catch yourself and you could ask those kinds of questions. What do I need in this moment to get through this right now? And you're more aware of your needs and you're consistently meeting those needs so that you're walking around in a more balanced space so that you know, I think the closer we are and towards our center, the less impacted we are by the sensitivities and the emotional overwhelm. So if I'm centered, I'm actually reducing the impact of my sensitivities and my overwhelm. If I'm way off center, I'm way more sensitive, way more reactive, way more overwhelmed. So that's one thing is to be able to live in that balance of not constantly having that overstimulation. You know, going through the world in a more balance-centered way is completely different, but it requires a consistent practice of self-care, downtime, meeting our needs, and we have to be consistent about that.
0: We do. That consistency, I think, is one of those things. I know for me, this is my ongoing journey to train myself into consistency.
1: Yes. And that's a process. I think for all of it's kind of I call it there's like a three step process. The first step is that we kind of start to feel a little bit aware of like, maybe I'd be beneficial for me to do this over here or something, but then we kind of don't do it. The second process is a phase of it is that we actually start doing it pretty regularly, but you know, not all the time. So we're making some of those changes. And the third one is we do it most of the time. But I always stress that Nobody walks around in a completely balanced state all the time. That's just not possible. But you become more able to handle life's challenges when you are in a centered space. So you'll start to recognize there's only like a few reasons why people stopped using the tools, for example, is that maybe they started to feel better, for example, and say, oh, maybe I don't need to meditate or do mindfulness or do all my self-care because I'm actually feeling great. So they kind of go back to what they were doing before. And then they start to feel bad again. So then you kind of start to recognize like, wait a minute, I see a direct correlation because I'm paying attention to patterns. If I'm doing these things, I feel well, I feel like I'm thriving. And so you start to make different choices and kind of figure out that holistic piece of your life. Where am I going to make these changes in order to live in these conditions that will work better for me?
0: And this is the training piece. The training is the noticing, if I shift this here, it might have this impact here.
1: Yes, and that's why my book and course is an eight-week program, because it works through that and it goes to changing our foundation, changing our habits, really making, you know, and it's very interesting because we can actually start to grow a new neural sprout in the brain in about three weeks. So you can, when you start using these tools, you can actually start to feel better really quickly.
0: How long does it take, though, to make that a new groove? Because I've heard that there's a big difference between growing those new neural sprouts and making those like new set pathways.
1: Yeah, well, consistency. So it usually takes about 21 days to change a habit they talk about, for example. And once you start making that change, continuing that process you know, through your consistency, checking out all the little pieces of your life, where your energy is going, where kind of keeping the I call it the kind of positive tank filled and draining out the resentment and challenges tank, working on all those pieces through consistency, your life can change quite quickly. And there I haven't actually seen people go through, like, say into the third or fourth week of the program, and then just stop. Because the thing is, is you actually start feeling better. So it's like a light bulb goes off inside of you and you're like, wow, this is actually working. Like I'm even having people in my life tell me that they're seeing a difference and just feeling better and being able to access those gifts is it makes it worth it. That's your reward because you feel better and everyone around you feels better seeing you feel better.
0: (laughs) I love it. Julie, can you let us know how we can reach you? How can we find you in your work? Yes, uh, through my website, my name, Julie
1: Bielland, and I'll spell out my last name for anybody that's listening. It's B as in boy, J-E-L-L-A-N-D. So it's juliebielland.com.
0: Wonderful. And we'll include a link in our show notes. I think everybody should also check out if you're interested. Julie has both a book and an online course. and Her online course is really wonderful. I've had a chance to peek into it myself. Julie, thank you so much for being here with us today.
1: Thank you. This is wonderful to talk about the subject, spread the message, and I appreciate the time. I really appreciate you being here as well.
0: Thank you. Sensitive people have always been around. And often, some of the most sensitive among us tend to shut off our emotion and avoid interactions with emotion. I hope that you've learned a little bit today about how... That's a really hard way to go through life and why being fully in touch with these parts of ourselves is so important. So this isn't specifically about sensitivity, but you may know that I am hosting online discussion groups around the topic of the wild woman. We have been meeting online the last Thursday of the month through September, journeying together in remembering who we are, what we're made of, and why we're here. And I would love for you to join us and to support you in your journey in this way. All of the proceeds from these online discussion groups come right back into the supporting the production of this podcast. Another way that you can support the production of the podcast is simply by leaving us a review in Apple Podcast or sending me an email at gmail.com and letting me know what you want to hear more of or are enjoying about the show. You're also welcome to find our community, our Popscast community on Facebook, or shoot us a note on social media at Pobscast. The Practice of Being Seen podcast is produced by me, Rebecca Wong, along with the amazing behind-the-scenes support of Christy Hausler. Music by Chris Ferris Jr. and Sr. produced by Kidney Stone Studio. I hope that you enjoyed the show and that you'll join us next week for another episode of the Pobscast, brought to you by Connectfulness. Thank you.